morning once again. This is Community Pulse, your local report on the coronavirus pandemic in mid-Missouri. You can catch Community Pulse Mondays and Wednesdays at 9 a.m. on KOPN, and all episodes can be found online at kopn.org and also on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Today on the show, host Dr. Elizabeth Alleman is joined by Carolyn Casey, lead analyst for Airfinity's COVID-19 team. Airfinity is a science information and analytics company, and Dr. Alleman and Carolyn will be talking about vaccine access and distribution on a global scale. Good morning, Caroline. How are you doing today? Very well, thanks. Thank you so much for joining us. And Dr. Alleman, are you here on the line? I can hear you. How about you? Yes, we can hear you too. Thank you so much. And for our listeners, we are trying a great new program to broadcast our guests and our hosts. And so thanks for hanging with us, Dr. Alman and Caroline, as we figured this out. And hopefully we will be able to all hear each other and talk throughout this entire show. It's going well so far. Yeah, so well. So I'm just going to say the irony is that right now in my office, I'm having a really loud a piece of construction work done and I thought that I could sit in my car and do this but that is somehow not working so um, I the irony is that we've gone to this new system so that we can have better sound quality and I may be messing that up so we're going to do our best today you know what so, it sounds great so far so oh great yeah let me know if I need to see if I can dash out and move to some other place. <laughs> okay. So I am so happy to be um, talking to the audience and everybody today. It's so, it's almost disorientingly positive news with regard to um, cases declining uh, throughout the United States, in Missouri, and in Boone County. Um, we have for, you know, over a week had all of our daily new case numbers be below the um public health department's capacity to do contact tracing. Uh, The sewer shed surveillance project is confirming that these numbers are, you know, their numbers are coming along um, with ours as with these as well. Um, You know, some people are asking, like, can we believe the numbers? Is this really happening? So I've been trying to, you know, reorient myself to this delightful, rapid uh, falling of cases, uh, knowing that it is not happening everywhere around the world and not happening even everywhere in the United States, but it is happening and seems to be happening in Missouri and in Boone County. There is a big discrepancy between the number of daily cases that are reported by the state of Missouri and the rate of daily cases that Matthew Holloway is collecting by almost a factor of three. And um, um, uh, Elizabeth, I think the health department, you cut um, out for just a second, Elizabeth. So if you could just rewind, I don't know, 15 seconds or so from what you were saying. Sorry. Thank you. Mm -hmm. So, um, so the, the numbers, there's a discrepancy in state numbers, um, uh, reported in Missouri between um, what the health department, the Department of Health is reporting. They're reporting between five and 600 cases a day. And Matthew Holloway is reporting somewhere between 1,200 and 1,500 cases a day. His data comes directly from publicly uh, available sources. The, the um, uh, agencies that report these like county and city health departments and other governmental agencies. And so when he adds them up, he gets a very different number than what the state is getting. And that's concerning. And yet it's still true that even Matthew's numbers are down. The Missouri sewer shed surveillance data also has um, uh, counts down. They are documenting that in 13 different locations around the state, they are seeing 
the uh, COVID variant uh, that was initially identified in, in the United Kingdom um, that has presumed to be much more contagious. So we still have that to contend with. Um, and then reports from people I know who are working in hospitals are confirming that yes, their numbers are down in emergency rooms, in hospitals and intensive care units. We're seeing um, statistics of death rates and hospitalizations falling um, across the United States. And we're seeing increasing numbers of vaccines going into arms. So we're running around uh, 1.4 to 1.6 million doses being um, administered um, daily in the United States on an average running basis. And um, while that is great news, it is hard for me to see how that is really responsible uh, even primarily or even in a measurable way for the decreases we're seeing. So the decreases are a little bit of a curiosity to me. I believe them. I don't know how steep they are, but I believe that the numbers are coming down. Um, and I am not sure exactly why they're coming down now and so steeply, but I'm happy to see it. Um, so our guest today um, is going to talk to us about um, uh, vaccines and like the money about vaccines. So welcome uh, to uh, Community Pulse. And could you talk to us about like, how much has it cost to make these vaccines? Uh, short answer is billions and billions and billions. Um, I think the US have been quite transparent in what they've invested in. It's been billions per candidate they've included in their portfolio. Other countries, you don't know exactly what they've invested in, um, if the governments have helped companies in development, but it has been significant investments across the world. Okay. And um, where has the money come from? Big range. So some of the money is coming directly from the companies which they've invested at risk. Um, we've seen a lot of government involvement, which we've typically probably seen a lot less of in uh, previous vaccine developments as it's not caused as much of a problem to the economy. Um, we've also seen significant um, donations to organisations such as COVAX, which are being used to distribute um, doses globally rather than individual countries um, securing their own supply, um, as well as private companies investing um, as there has been some sort of incentive in terms of share prices as well for some of these companies. So when we're looking, your, your organization, Airfinity, has some really lovely graphics that have appeared in media and are available on your website about, you know, with where this money is coming from. And one of my questions is, when we're talking about private money, is that, are those charitable? Uh, um, investment money. So you cut out for just about Are you still seconds. there? Hello? I think both, both can of you Can you hear are, me now? Yeah. Yes, we can yeah. hear you. Dr. Alman, can you just repose your question? Okay, sorry. I, I, when, when someone else calls my cell phone and apparently that messes up our feed, uh, I'm so sorry about that. It's okay. Um, so the question is like when, when we talk about um, private money, is that charitable donations or are those investments? Uh, I think a bit of both. Uh, so some organizations have made charitable donations in order to support movement into um, clinical trials as quickly as possible. But I think there's also been some private investments. And um, can you talk about the profitability of vaccines in general and this vaccine specifically? Yeah, so in general it is definitely quite a profitable business because with vaccines it's not um, 
a couple of people taking your vaccine for the vaccines, particularly ones that aren't close to 100% effective, you need wide um, coverage across countries. So that gives you quite a big market, which you typically wouldn't get if you were, say, treating COVID-19, for example, where there's far fewer people who'll be infected by the virus. So that obviously leads to a massive increase into the revenue you can get. Um, but in terms of for COVID-19, I think quite a lot of the companies have committed um, significantly lower prices. We've also seen um, vaccine gifting from some of the companies. So I believe as of yet, we're not seeing companies making big um, wins from their vaccine candidates so far. But I think as we move into a system where perhaps we could have booster vaccinations, similar to how we work for flu, that could be extremely profitable for quite a few of the companies involved. Um, so can you talk a little bit, are, are there obvious differences between the different um, different companies and governments that are making these vaccines and their the source of their funding and their pricing and their profitability? Yeah, so I'd say the type of vaccine can affect the price. So um, the cheapest so far seems to be the viral vector vaccine, so say AstraZeneca's vaccine, um, Johnson Johnson's vaccine, um, the protein subunit one's slightly more expensive. Um, an example of that would be Novavax. Um, then the inactivated virus, so some of the candidates from China, you may have heard of Sinovac, Sinopharm, those are typically quite expensive to manufacture, so typically between um, 30 US dollars to 35 US dollars per dose. And for Moderna and Pfizer, um, the prices charged range, but I think to produce is probably between um, $15 and $30. Um, so I think that leads to a big range in what um, countries are charging, but we are also seeing um, some reductions in price if governments are making substantial orders, um, particularly from governments who've ordered the vaccines quite early or helped to support in terms of manufacturing. Can you talk about that a little bit about how governments have with this, how the pre-ordering uh, from governments has affected the ability of companies to um, create and bring to market a vaccine? Yeah, so it's um, massively helped. So um, at Affinity, we're based in the UK. So as part of um, the UK's portfolio for some of the candidates they secured, they offered up UK sites for manufacturing. So for example, AstraZeneca is manufactured in the UK. Um, our deal with Novavax will be manufactured in the UK. So they offered funding that would help accelerate their movement through clinical trials. So typically you'd see candidates complete a phase one, analyze the results, then move on to phase two analyze the results and then move on to phase three. But what we've seen with this is a rapid acceleration where most trials are run in parallel. So you'd have the phase one slash two trials run together, then the phase two slash three trials run together. And um, all of that supported with money from the government. And typically as the company would have had to invest less as the government supported them, they're happy to go through the riskier profile of running trials at the same time as these trials are extremely expensive to run. Um, oh, I get it. So some of it yeah. is that um, you would want to make sure that you had a good result from the phase one trial yeah. before you would invest the money in the phase two trial. Yeah, and, and you would spend, yeah. and you spend quite a bit of time analyzing different dosing regimes, um, testing perhaps in different cohorts, etc. But as we've had um, support from government funding, they've accelerated it through, which is why we've been able to get vaccines on the market within 10 months, which is unheard of. Right. Um, from a um, from a financial standpoint, it seems that one of the um, 
things that I have read about is that what governments also did was they committed to buying a certain number of doses, even regardless of what the trials were going to look like. Um, and so the companies could also begin the manufacturing process while they were still waiting for the results of the trials. Is, is, am I understanding that correctly? Completely. So there was a lot of at-risk production. Um, so say, for example, Pfizer had, I think, 50 million doses available by December. So they were definitely producing before they had the full results in November. Okay. Um, and... So when people, when companies or governments are investing in this COVID vaccine um, project, um, are, what kinds of financial returns are investors expecting? Or are they, are some of them just wanting to, uh, what are their motivations? Uh, I think it depends on the investment. So um, some it's been charitable. We've seen quite a lot from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation trying to secure a portfolio and then um, working with organisations such as um, COVAX to get those uh, vaccines that they've helped to support distributed more widely. Um, but in terms of uh, private investors, I think uh, probably best example of that would be Moderna. So Moderna, before their COVID-19 vaccine results in November, didn't have a single um, vaccine or treatment on the market. So as a result of the results of that one, the share price has massively increased. Um, so investors um, would have stood to gain quite a lot of money from that. Um, yeah, so the Moderna was, it's my understanding, was developing these RNA vaccines for the treatment of, say, cancers or autoimmune or genetic yeah. disorders rather than for infectious diseases. Yeah, they rapidly pivoted as soon as um, they had the news from Wuhan. Um, so are, are, are there places in the world where individuals who are being vaccinated are being charged for the vaccine that you know of? Not that I've seen yet. I think we've started to see private companies um, being allowed to purchase vaccines for their employees, but I haven't seen any reports of um, people being charged. And I think that's been quite helpful in terms of preventing fraud. As I think there's been a few cases in the UK where people have turned up at houses um, asking for money to then vaccinate them. Oh, so, yeah. So uh, when you talk about fraud, one of the things that's on my mind about fraud is based on listening to the news and looking at the news just in the last 24 hours that the World Bank is unhappy with Lebanon because they vaccinated some of their political leaders uh, out, of, like, out of order based on their medical priority. And then um, in the United States, there's a concierge uh, medical practice, One Medical, who um, is under fire for allowing some of their paying customers to um, uh, get a their patients to, to basically jump in line based on their wealth or their connections. Um, and are, is, is that like uh, this is the I knew that we would see it. It's just hard to imagine mm -hmm. that human beings would have a scarce resource and that people with power and money wouldn't try to jump the line and that it would never work. But I'm wondering um, what are, is this something that you're paying attention to? And can you comment on that? Yeah, definitely with something we're paying attention to. I think there has been um, 
rumours of more of a black market being set up where perhaps in countries where they've had very scarce supply, the vaccines go to the highest bidder, particularly some of um, the vaccines, particularly at very short supply, say Moderna, um, outside of the US. Um, but I haven't seen any concrete examples. And I think quite a lot of governments have gone forward with the idea that everyone should get the vaccine offered for free from the government to avoid this issue as much as possible. Gotcha. So the so free vaccinations don't just um, allow for um, us to get a higher level of vaccination with an idea that that will help us uh, slow spread of the disease. It also is sort of a justice and equity issue and prevents fraud. Definitely. Um, so are there, are there things about, oh, let's see, I want to talk about worldwide, like in the, like talk about, I think what they're calling it vaccine hoarding by uh, resource um, abundant com countries compared to countries with shorter resources and how that's impacting vaccine distribution and, and finances of the yeah. vaccine effort. So I think this all comes into play with when doses were ordered. So there have been quite a few countries, the US, the UK included, that ordered a lot of doses before we had the phase three results. They had no idea what would work. Right. So when you're making orders like that, it makes sense to order from a range of candidates in the hopes that perhaps one or two of them would work. We're in a very lucky situation where almost all of them are working very well, um, which no one really expected or at least could be sure of before we started to see the phase three data coming through. Um, yes, I have been stunned as well. Not yeah. that I'm any expert about this, but I have, you know, it's like, wow, not, not, th this just seems amazing that this many of the vaccines are working. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I still remember the day the Pfizer results came out. I was like, oh, first results out and it's 95% effective. Wow. It's going to be a right. struggle for all the others. Um, so with that, um, that means that some countries were securing more doses than they need for their population. So the country that's um, most known for this, I'd say, is Canada that scored, secured over 10 doses per head. But it's also important to note that Canada don't, don't have uh, many vaccine production sites within the country, so they're entirely reliant on vaccines um, being allowed to be exported from other countries and imported into Canada. So they use that as part of their um, ideas for deciding how many doses they'd need to secure as they knew that they wouldn't be first in line to get the doses because they're not producing it in the country. So um, say if other countries wanted to prioritize vaccinating their own population first, such as the US, they haven't been getting supplies through from um, Moderna and Pfizer from the US, for example. Okay, and I think there's also been some uh, discussions between the EU and the UK about the production and the exportation of is it the AstraZeneca from yeah. Brussels? I'm, I'm, they they yeah. are all kind of melding in my mind. Of course. Um, <laughs> uh, so if, if I understand it correctly, the, the European Union is really wanting to, of course, like all places, wanting to vaccinate their, um, their population. The United Kingdom approved the um, AstraZeneca vaccine before the European Union did. And so there's a major production plant in Brussels and so a lot of the vaccines that are going into being injected in the United Kingdom are actually being exported from Brussels into the United Kingdom. And the European Union is now saying, wait, why are we doing that when, when we've now approved this vaccine? Why don't we keep it here? 
Yeah, am so, I summarizing it fairly well? Or Yes, yeah, so I think that would be for the Pfizer vaccine, for the AstraZeneca oh, vaccine. The, the UK okay. um, have Got their it. own supply. But I think there's also been some issues with um, the European Union signing deals later than the UK. So say, for example, for the AstraZeneca site in the UK, and we signed that deal pretty early on. I believe we signed it in May last year. Um, and it was a candidate developed in the UK as well, so unsurprisingly we signed it very quickly. Um, but the manufacturing sites were set up straight away after that, whereas the European Union only, I think, confirmed the deal probably around November time, December time. So there mm -hmm. was a site in the EU that could produce AstraZeneca, but I don't think they started the at-risk production until they had more confirmation from the EU that they would actually be ordering. And as a result okay. of that, they've had problems with the manufacturing as they've had far less time to scale up. You know, we're talking about trying to get as many millions of doses out of the factory as quickly as possible. But it does take time to build up to um, a way of working that would let you do that at scale. Right. And so when you talk, you're talking about at risk production. So this is yeah. producing vaccines that you haven't already sold yet. Uh, producing vaccines before you know they work. And um, for the UK, it, it had already been sold. Um, the UK had already set in there. So, are so you they still were producing. There? Can you hear me? Yep. Yep. Um, so, for the UK, um, the doses had already been sold to the UK in the site production. So, it was less risky for AstraZeneca um, as they already had a source of where the vaccines were going for and, and some investment in the manufacturing and support. Okay. So I'm wondering whether there's something about um, the whole how money and vaccines are dancing together that I haven't asked you about that you think is important for our listeners to hear about. Um, I'd probably just emphasize that uh, producing vaccines is an extremely complicated process. It's not very easy to scale up to the numbers that we want in trying to vaccinate populations as quickly as possible and that's why I think we've started to see a lot of countries setting up their own vaccine manufacturing sites, um, trying to secure supplies for their own population rather than globally. Okay, so that brings me back to remembering that I have not asked you to talk about COVAX and yes. how it's working and why we have it and why it's important. Yep, so um, COVAX is an initiative set out to distribute doses across the world. Their aim is to get every country at least a supply of vaccines enough that they would be able to fully vaccinate 20% of their population. So currently they're heavily reliant on the AstraZeneca vaccine and we've had the first delivery to Ghana this morning, which is very exciting. Um, Woohoo! <laughs> yeah, good to finally see it start rolling, but I'd say um, probably the big criticism would be the pace. So, you know, Israel have vaccinated 75% of their population already, have gotten at least one dose and we've only seen the first doses being delivered out um, this morning, unfortunately. So um, it is much more difficult for them as, you know, they're distributing vaccines globally. They have far more considerations because they're trying to select vaccines that are suitable to be distributed globally. So say for Pfizer, they do have a deal with them, but it is only for 40 million doses. So, you know, the US have secured far more doses just for themselves. The UK have actually also secured just 40 million doses of Pfizer, to put it a little bit into context. So they have mm -hmm. a far more difficult job of selecting candidates that are suitable to be distributed globally, particularly in lower middle income countries, but also creating a, a system that is fair for all the countries and taking into account what variants are present in the countries as well, um, due to some quite disappointing results of AstraZeneca versus the variant um, pre highly prevalent in the um, country of South Africa.
Right. Um, and, and I think that one of the things that we can sometimes forget is that this um, crisis is not going to end for any of us until it has ended for all of us. And I, I think we can, that can sound like, um, you know, something aspirational, but it's just so true that um, as long as there is widespread community spread anywhere, and as long as we allow international travel, which we seem to, for good reasons, want to do, we're just really not going to get to um, an end to the global pandemic until we get everybody protected. I completely agree, sir. I think it's no surprise that we've seen um, quite concerning variants from Brazil, South Africa, and the UK all reporting quite high infection rates. I think it's a really important message that if the infection rate in your country is fine, that doesn't mean you're fine. If the infection rate is higher in another country, that increases the risk that we could get variants that could perhaps um, diminish completely the uh, response from vaccines. There could be variants that perhaps even these vaccines posting really high efficacy results aren't that effective against. And we've already started to see that with the results through from Novavax, Johnson Johnson and AstraZeneca. Um, so it does really paint the picture that we do need widespread vaccination for everyone to be safe. It's, it's definitely not the picture that your own country is vaccinated and you shut the borders and everything will be fine because in practice it's very difficult to keep borders shut. It's also very expensive. Um, these sort of two-week quarantine hotels we've got set up in the UK um, costing over £2,000, probably more than you spend on your own holiday. Right. Yeah, and um, they cost many things. Like they co like it really limits how much people want to spend on international travel for business yeah. or recreation if you have to spend two weeks on the front end and two weeks on the back end quarantining. Exactly. And you make such a great point that it's not just, oh, well, if there's widespread community spread in another country, people could bring it back. It's when there's this widespread community spread and lots of viral replication, that's when we just have this beautiful setup for the, the virus to create genetic variants. Exactly. And then, yeah. um, and that could cause major problems, could lead to entire revaccination efforts, running trials again. And would be very expensive and um, costly process for everyone, really. Right, so dangerous and costly yeah. right at the same time. Um, so I, I so appreciate you um, coming on and being a part of our, of our show. I'm wondering if there are any uh, final uh, uh, points you want to leave us with. I think it's a very good discussion and look forward to seeing um, lots more countries getting vaccines and hopefully moving towards the end of the pandemic and the end of lockdowns as we really start to see in the UK. Well, Carolyn Casey, a lead analyst with Airfinity's COVID-19 team, I really appreciate you um, spending the time with us. Um, Mallory, I'm wondering if you had any questions that you feel like I hadn't covered. I think just to give our listeners a, a little bit more context um, about Airfinity's work would be great. I mean, Airfinity is popping up in a lot of different media outlets um, that are covering COVID-19. So, Carolyn, could you just give us kind of an overview of what Airfinity does and what your role is with the organization? Yeah, sure. So we're a science analytics company. And what that means is we have... Um, 
quite a big tech team that support in collecting data from all publicly available sources and use that to build um, online platforms that give real insights into the data we have so far on COVID, oncology and cardiology. So specifically on COVID, um, we do a lot of work in the vaccine space, modeling out what potential scenarios could be for different countries based on supply information, production information, and um, give a real overview of kind of the 360 view of what's having with, happening with COVID-19 rather than, you know, this news report is saying this and this news report is saying that. Awesome. And then your your role within, you're the lead analyst for Airfinity's COVID-19 team. I imagine that whatever you were doing before the pandemic, you had to pivot quite a bit. Um, <laughs> how, how has that been for you just in the past year, having this dominate your life? Um, really exciting. I think um, previously I used to work a lot on conference data, but of course, conference industry is probably one of the hardest hit industries from this is um, everything's had to move virtual. Mm -hmm. um, but I've really enjoyed it. I think it's been good to stay up to date with everything that's happening on COVID. There is an absolute ton of news coming in every day. So it's quite good to be able to actually put that into context. And I've quite a few friends ask me, you know, I've been offered this vaccine. Should I take it? I'm like, of course, here's the data. Here you go. <laughs> yes, I, I feel like you would be a very good friend to have during this, yeah, exactly. this time. <laughs> Dr. Alleman, do you have any other questions before we wrap up the show? I, I don't think so. I, um, I just want to... Um, express gratitude to your patients, Mallory, with the new technology and uh, so grateful to our listeners and to all the supporters of KOPN Community Radio. And I'll just end with my normal blessing, which is wear your mask and you know, probably up your mask game, wash your hands, take your vitamin D, take the first vaccine that you're offered and um, <clears throat> avoid uh, crowds and indoor places, open windows when you're inside with people who aren't in your household and uh, generate, uh, develop and uh, cultivate a uh, healthy confidence that that your body can handle a viral infection and thanks for listening and we'll talk to you next week that's it for today's edition of community pulse special thanks to our guest carolyn casey lead analyst for airfinity's covid19 team if you missed part of this program or want to share it with your friends you can find it later today at KOPN.org and also on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. As always, we invite you to share your questions with us as we plan for future episodes. Leave a message at 573-874-1139 or email gm at KOPN.org. Thanks so much for tuning in to KOPN 89.5 FM, your volunteer-run, listener-supported community radio station here in Mid-Missouri. 51% is up next. Stay tuned. <laughs>